everybody welcome to chuck yates needs a job the podcast i am cornering the market on the dans at pickering energy partner so i got another one dan which dan are you dan ramito i'm uh, running point on the consulting business for pp so what is the consulting right. business at because i you know i used to be an investment banker i know m and a i know raising financing i don't know what consulting within an investment bank is yeah and it it varies too, right? There's there's a lot of buzzwords that people usually throw out from it. The, generally speaking, the way that you want to think about it is it, it complements everything that DP does, right? There's we operate on the energy spectrum, so there's companies on the renewable side that uh, are predominantly focused on how do I penetrate the energy markets because we're renewables, we're not as familiar, we're traditionally technologists, and then on the conventional energy side, I think more of the focus is how do we maintain and actually broaden pools of capital? Uh, the, the, the walls are closing in in many cases on access to capital to energy companies. Uh, so a lot of the work that we do on the consulting side is partnering with clients on what's the regulatory mandates coming online? What are the expectations of investors, both current and aspirational? And then frankly, what are what's the competitive landscape look like all in the pursuit of getting the, the, the long-term quality capital that we need to execute our plan? I got you. Before we jump into that, because there's a lot to unpack there. How do you become a consultant? <laughs> what, what, did, what did you What did you do with your life before being yeah, energy so partners? The, the story is like, how much time do we have? Right? It's uh, you. You kind of fall into it. If I'm being honest, you you find this little niche, and then you find out people either don't want to do the niche, or they don't have the time to do that particular niche, and then they rely on you to be an extension of their team and do sort of the dirty work that they just don't want to do. Um, coming out of grad school, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to land a job with NASDAQ. I was with NASDAQ for almost nine years. Um, the way that I got that job at NASDAQ was, oddly enough, a guy in my fantasy football league was talking about what he did and he worked at NASDAQ and he's like, Hey, do you want to work there? So there wasn't any of this nifty networking or skill set necessarily. It was, it was literally, Hey, I, I, I like how you drafted your team. Let's talk a little bit more about what you do. Um, so when I when I got to Nasdaq, you know at that time, you know it was a scrappy mid cap. It was like five or six billion market cap. Um, and the new regime, a guy who's I'm actually really good friends with today, his name's Ed Dittmeyer. Uh, he was a recently hired IRO, and because I was relatively new and he was relatively new, he was just brainstorming on like, well, how do we get Nasdaq on the map, so to speak? Um, and going through the numbers, it was it was clear as day like, hey, why don't you just increase the dividend, the payout, the stuff, cash flows like crazy. Uh, when this business cash flows like crazy, you want to increase the payout. And he's like, that's actually pretty hard. That's a lot harder than you think it is to pass. So long story short, we went through this pretty arduous analysis and showcase to the management team uh, and to the board that you should raise the dividend, right? It could have been a five-minute conversation. It was like a 50-page deck as most of these things usually went out. In doing that, I became like the dividend guy. Uh, just, hey, here's, here's Romito, the dividend guy. And we started 
basically replicating that analysis to other companies that listed on NASDAQ. And so when was this? What this year? Is like, what uh, year are we 2015, talking? 2015-2016. And just because my mom listens to this yeah. periodically. So we're talking NASDAQ, the exchange. The stock exchange. The stock exchange. Yeah. And so, okay, cool. Yeah. So, so and it's, what was, so I became like the dividend guy. Um, and then that led to other conversations with, with clients and frankly prospects on uh, getting over the list on NASDAQ or to switch to NASDAQ, like what else could you do? Um, and at that time, that's when the index explosion was taking place, right? Everyone was saying that passive money is overtaking active. Um, it was a little bit foreign today. We just take it for granted. Right. Uh, but at that time, it's like, well, what's what's going on? Um, in the back of my mind, if I'm being honest, obviously, I wanted to grow my career, but I also wanted to weasel my way into going to Europe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, how do I get over to Europe? Well, NASDAQ had a, uh, you know, their second largest exchange was in Stockholm. The Swedish exchange. I'm like, never been to Stockholm. That sounds awesome. Like, let's go. Um, so when we were attempting to cross sell, you know, the dividend policies and the investor targeting work that we did, um, when I got to Europe, people were like, "Well, that's that's amazing. Do you do anything with ESG?" And we're like, what? 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 I, I, I actually literally never even heard of it. Um, but all the Europeans, whether it was in the Nordics or in continental Europe, um, they would say something along the lines of. Increasingly, our investor base is asking about ESG, ESG, ESG. And like, right. Like, okay. So, did a little bit of homework, um, did a ton of research, you know, spoke to a lot of the Went to Wikipedia. There. Went to Wikipedia, <laughs> a lot of Google work. A lot of you know, Google they didn't have ChatGPT at the time, so you had to like, you know, just work with, with what you had with Google. Um, brought that back to the States. Um, and then, you know, through analysis and like, actually, you know, to be fair, like a lot of hard work, got the message out. Uh, of like, hey, this is probably something that's coming on the horizon. And for like two years, people are like, this is this is dumb. This is never going to happen. It's never going to catch on. And so like after 18 months, my, my boss at the time was like, are you sure that this is going to pick up? I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. In the back of my mind, I'm like, Please. I, I hope so. Like, fingers crossed. I've got five yeah. more trips yeah, planned exactly. to Sweden. It's like, man, I want to go back to uh, Germany this time. Like, Sweden was right. fun, but, you know, I want to check out some other places. Um, and then... You know, in 20, let's call it 17, um, when corporates thought that Europe was the next frontier of just investor capital, like for whatever reason, it, it, it caught on fire. You know, all the corporates, publicly traded companies, right? Let's get European capital. Let's get European capital. Let's get European capital. What do we have to do? They would make that trip. They would be asked about like, what are your ESG disclosures? What are your policies? And they would come back and we would get these phone calls. You're like, I, I, Someone would call me and be like, I think your name is Don Romito, I think. And you were talking about GSE. I'm like, my name is Dan Romito. I'm like, ESG. They're like, yeah, totally. Um, so we just began advising clients um, on, frankly, what we were hearing anecdotally. Uh, we built a variety of cool data sets and technology platforms that would assist them. It became, um, frankly, a barn burner, um, caught on like wildfire. And then just from almost just Murph from like the dividend guy to the ESG guy, not because I had any background in ESG, just frankly, because our team took the time to actually understand like what it was and how it was helpful and how investors were using it kind of kept out more of the idealistic. And, um, when Dan Pickering came calling, um, I had already had been coincidentally just super entrenched in the energy transition. Um, I, I, I very much related it to what we saw, uh, with the dot com or or the um, a lot of the technology advancements that had, had taken place during the two thousands, 
And, you know, some of those clients that we're talking about at NASDAQ, you're like, you're not an energy company. You're not a technology company. You're not just a consumer discretionary. You're like this hybrid model. Um, and so when Dan was trying to express to me or explain, like, we think that energy fits on the spectrum, right? And all these companies need our help. You know, immediately it was like uh, Jerry Maguire. It's like you had me at hello. Um, I thought I was going to work at NASDAQ, frankly, forever. I still have a you know special place in my heart for those guys. I think the world of Adina Freeman, she helped me a lot in my career. Nelson Griggs, the president of the exchange, was a mentor, but, you know, wanted to make that hop. And so is this, I mean, when you're at NASDAQ, is it is it dollars per assignment? I mean, you, or was that just, <laughs> no, or was that yeah. just part of what NASDAQ offered? You list with us, by the way, you get Dan, the fantasy football dude, to right. come in and talk. I did great fantasy football that year too. So like the stars were aligning. So my fantasy football story is I've been playing with the same guys for 35 years. Yeah. We all went to uh, Rice together. And back in the day, I used to win the league every other year. I was oh, wow. great. And then kids came along. Oh, and what really hurt me was the advent of the internet because yeah. I used to call like the local beat writer for all the local oh, really? <laughs> n- newspapers. Like one guy turned me on to Doug Flutie starting over yeah. Rob Johnson. You know, I had a You should have started like a numbers oh, I had, or something like that. I had all of this insight. And then we also added points per reception. And so I was lamenting five years yeah. ago to my buddy Fish. I'm like, dang, ever since we made all those changes, I've just sucked. And he goes, well, Chuck, I think priorities have changed in life. <laughs> if we were playing fantasy blonde country music yeah. singer, you'd be kicking our butt. You'd be the number so, one contender. Yeah, maybe maybe so. Real quick on that too. Like this was, I've been playing the same fantasy football league with buddies from high school. Like we've been doing this, I guess now for like you know, 15, 20 years, whatever it is. And you know, this is the first year I let my boys help me out in the draft because they I don't have time to follow this. They follow it religiously. They can tell you everything about the team. So my hesitancy was naturally during a fantasy football league, everyone just talks trash the whole time. So like you give like the heads up. But during the draft, um, we had to do it remote because some people are in Chicago. We have Florida. um, They're all over the place. Uh, Texas, obviously. We, uh, my kids, my two boys, they're 11 and 9, were talking trash about my picks. Right, nice. so they're like, they're like, Dan, our team sucks. They keep believing you made this. Like my yeah. my eight-year-old, he's eight, at the time, he's like crying. He's like, I'm done. And like they walked off. Oh, that's uh, awesome. And I, and I ended up doing good. I think I got like third or fourth. But I was like, geez, guys, like never a million years have like these grown men ever talked as much trash as like you guys are supposed to be on my team. Anyway, um, the question- It doesn't get any better. It doesn't. My, my kids are older. It doesn't yeah. get any better. Wait. So so Dan hires you over mm-hmm. and the, the mission is we're going to go talk to our clients- What's the business model? Somebody yeah. pays for an assignment? Is it how does that work? Yeah, I mean the business model focuses on acting as an extension of the team. I'll be the first one to admit, like this is what I'll give you another funny story. Like I had the opportunity of meeting uh Mike Pompeo. Um I spoke at the Petroleum Alliance in Oklahoma and Pompeo was the keynote. So like I give my little speech on SEC climate disclosure mandate, Pompeo gives up. Um, the guy organizing the event was nice enough to introduce me to Pompeo, and he goes, he goes, Mr. Pompeo, this is Dan Romito. He 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 does ESG work for energy companies, and I reach out. This is a true story. I have a picture of it. I reach out to shake his hand, and he goes, give me like the <laughs> Does he really? He his head. So like, it, it no, it's always like nice to like be brought down to earth. Um, but I tell that story because the point is like at the end of the day people have to focus on 
executing the business. No one really says, if I'm being honest, like, hey, I love ESG, like, let's, let's do it. Um, so the flip side of that is in today's market to raise capital, in nine out of 10 cases, you have to do it. So the, the balance is how do we get the data in the first place? How do we organize it in a manner to where it would pass ideally some sort of assurance or some sort of audit? And then how do we scale this over the course of time so we're not reinventing the wheel? So let's dig, let's dig into it because here was my take. Mm -hmm. So we would go raise money. Uh, Ken Hirsch, Natural Gas Partners, in effect, creates private equity and energy. He, late 90s, he's in there saying, talking to a private capital guy saying, hey, you need me versus biotech versus right. buyout, whatever. And then he's so successful at it, people allocate 10% to energy, right? Yeah. So then you go in and it's like, well, me instead of quantum, instead right. of NCAP, you know, blah, blah, blah. You do that. Well, at some point, probably about the time you're talking 16, 17, yeah. 18, we started hearing what's your ESG policy right. and the like. And so the way I describe it, I think it was Justice Potter that talked yeah. about pornography right. in the Supreme Court decision. You know, I know it when I see yeah. it. That's what I kind of felt like LPs were doing. Yeah. And so when we raised Energy Fund 6, we had ESG meetings and we probably scored a a C plus, but we were defensive. We mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of policies and procedures. Kind of my fallback was, hey, every time I sell an asset, it gets an environmental review and yeah. I never had a write down right. because of that. So we got through it. So I decided to be more proactive on uh -huh. fund seven. When we went out raising, at that point, we had our ESG conference. Yep. All our CEOs came together. Mm -hmm. We, I, the deal with them is, hey, we're going to go play golf and have fun. We'll have a comedian, but we're six hours in a conference room right. doing real shit. So we we would do that. We published an end-of-the-year scorecard and all mm -hmm. that. But at the end of the day, we got, oh, y'all have great ESG yeah. stuff. But I didn't know what we were doing other right. than we were just trying to maybe define what it was. Yeah. I mean, so there's a couple different things, right? I mean, over the last 10 years, the generalist investor, right? I think energy, everyone knows each other. Everyone knows who to turn to within the energy space. It's a very tight-knit group. Um, when it when it comes to attracting, let's call it generalist capital, it operates on a spectrum. There's, there's some investors that treat this as gospel, like you have to have this and they're a little bit more idealistic than others. And then on the other end of the spectrum is a, is a check the box. Where, where we see the utility on it is showcasing differentiators of the business not necessarily just in an anecdotal sense. So le relying less on the qualitative and a lot less on the fluff and then showing the prowess of the business quantitatively, right? So everyone, what do they usually say? They we're unique, we're different. Well, if everyone is saying they're unique and everyone is saying different by definition, no one's unique and no one's really different. All right. that stuff begins to look the same. What really sets apart the companies is how are material data points trending? How are your missions trending? What is your flaring? You know, how is your health and safety record? What is your waste? What is your water? If you can showcase how that is trending, um, and then marry that with how you're differentiating yourself yourself qualitatively, then you know nothing is guaranteed, but you're positioning yourself better than what your competitor is. So, what is that? What is that? Well, let me let me say, do you have best? Well, let's start here. Is there, quote unquote, an agency, a nonprofit, or somebody that has the magic list that they hand down that you have to go through that certifies ESG? Yeah. Or is it 
you're defining putting stuff out and you're comparing to peers? What is that? Yeah, look I think like? so. I think the SEC is trying to do that, right? And now they're, you know, I think their motivations are a little bit. You don't have to go on the political realm, or a little bit slightly different, but maybe indirectly, they're they're trying to create that sandbox, those parameters. Um, best practices would be, dictate that the company itself dictates what the narrative actually entails, right? What is the bottom up narrative of this business, and let's control that narrative. One one of the things, as an outsider, right, coming from the the Nasdaq world, where we did have energy clients, we were just predominantly known more for obviously technology. But what those other sectors did so well and what energy did not do, frankly, was uh, the successful companies in those respective sectors control the narrative. They did not allow outside factors, outside entities to dictate to the general public what the terms or what the profile of the company was. Now, in fairness, energy is obviously a little bit of a different animal, um, but you know where I think energy got it wrong and 2017, 2018, outside of the, the shale, like that was a rough time, obviously, was there was like this this butting of the heads. Like everybody was doing this. And then energy's like, we're not going to participate in this. Yeah. And to be fair, like some did. It wasn't like this this flat out refusal. Um, but the positive, the flip side of that is today, you know, energy is probably doing a much better job of relative to the other sectors. It just, you know. That, that story resonating with the general public, that, that's a lagging indicator. Like everything about the US energy space, and we've written about this extensively, like that story is incredibly positive, incredibly impressive, whether it's emissions, flaring, health and safety, water stewardship, waste. The prowess of the US energy sector is one to be admired and one to aspire to from a global perspective. And yet when you talk to somebody who thinks about US energy, what do they what do they usually say if, if they're outside? They say, you know, I saw that movie with Marky Mark, Deepwater Horizon, like right. big bad energy. Or, you know, they they saw that movie with Matt Damon and the guy from the office about, you know, fracking, like poisoning my water. Um, and clearly like energy is no saint, but frankly, the other sectors aren't either. But the whole purpose is to align economic reality with what the data says and what right now those things don't aren't necessarily reconciled so i show up i'm a client of picking pickering energy partners i'm an oil and gas company i want to go public mm -hmm. um get real granular with me what are we putting together to yeah you know, so it starts with the data right we take a very data a data focused approach to, to all our work in most cases the the, the capital markets has a does have a checklist of everything that they want. It's usually with one of the frameworks that that's being what's called modified every six months. Like they just can't settle on a framework, which is frustrating in itself. But um, how a company defines and tracks data, number one, is usually different from how the external world evaluates it or tracks it. One of the greatest examples is a pretty common framework. It's called the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. People usually refer to it as SASB. They measure energy usage in gigajoules. You can go to someone in West Texas, you're like, can I have your gigajoules? Like, yeah. what, what are you talking about? Um, you know, our European friends tend to measure uh, production in cubic meters. I'm right. thinking of everything in barrels. And so it's right. like, I have to convert that, carry the one, get my Excel spreadsheet going out. Um, but the definitions and the timing of it is just something that usually smaller companies, right, don't have the resources or the patience to do. We handle that. 
The second thing is is the mapping. When you're mapping the data, it has to be in a certain format. Um, interestingly enough, the, one of the things that we see is individuals, so people are not at least initially evaluating this. We're, we're in a fascinating time where algorithms are, are leading the charge. Right? You have a lot of algorithms that are programmed to search for very specific disclosures in very specific places. Um, and if you don't disclose it in the right fashion, you know, you're not going to get credit for it. So how do you format your disclosures and where you place them on your website in order to get credit where credit is due? And then strategically, there is a little bit of a gaming of the system. You know, everybody's natural inc- inclination is to just push everything that you have to the marketplace. Well, if you push everything that you have to the marketplace, at least initially, you're setting that bar really, really high. Because then you take it away. Right. People are going to exactly. ask why. Exactly. And Got the place thing is, is to go down. So it's what do we release to the market? Like what are, how are investor expectations evolving, especially on the public side with BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, like that's a whole other conversation. Um, how are LP requirements evolving? What's the regulatory environment? What do we, what do we have to do? What should we do? And then what should we aspire to be? Like that sounds easy when you just say it out loud conceptually, but in practice. It's actually- so what are some of the things we're, we're releasing? What would be in a chart? Yeah. Methane emission? What's Yeah, I think, you know, now that the the Inflation Reduction Act has the methane tax, um, and now there's a financial liability in theory associated with methane. Everyone's trying to get a hold of their methane numbers. Um, there's scope one. So in other words, you know, what energy are you actually using? Scope one and two. Um, there is a school of thought which I don't agree with at all on on scope three. Like everyone, you should have scope three. And it's like, how how are we going to do that? Right. And I've yet to see I've yet to see any mathematical correlation established between let's call it valuation premium and scope three performance. Right? Well, walk us through scope one, scope two, scope three on what that is. Yeah, real so, simply. So the way to think about it is scope one is like what are you responsible for? What are emissions that your business is responsible for? Scope two is what are you taking off the grid? What are, what are you utilizing? And then scope three is what is the environmental or the emissions footprint of your entire supply chain? So, so theoretically, an oil and gas company, me, I'm using mm-hmm. gas off the lease to power all my stuff. So theoretically, that's that's kind of yeah. scope one. Correct. Scope two, yeah, I'm connected to the grid. I'm sure somewhere, but check your utility bills. Check your <laughs> utility bills. Got that. And then then scope three is. I'm making a ton of oil and gas and it's burning and whatever it's doing. And people are using it, utilizing right. it for a variety of different things. Most of the time, the they don't even realize. Yeah. Yeah. They don't even realize that it's part of or it derives from oil and gas if they hate oil and gas, right? The the protester that's, you know, tweeting on his cell phone, riding his bike, which is fine, but saying that we should get rid of oil and gas, we're like, none of those tools that you currently have or that you're currently using would be in place. Um, which is a little bit snarky, but it's it goes without saying. What's 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 frustrating is we we worked with um, Generac, for example, and when they're debating scope three, whether or not they're going to do it, it's like, well, how do you track the amount of hours that someone's going to use your generator? Like, are you going to track every single entity and their respective hours when it plugs into um, when you're using that generator? It's like, no, that's impossible. What does even what even purpose does that serve? So, uh, back to your question, like you know, what do we do? There is a diminishing utility, like that utility curve falls off a cliff when you just 
reach a point of like certain disclosures. You just don't need it. It's not going to incrementally improve your profile one way or the other. Now, you and I are both very rational people live <laughs> live in the real world. I know yeah. people don't believe that. I actually can be rational. Yeah. I didn't wear a sword on my shirt. The, uh, one of the guys at University of Oklahoma, great guy, describes me as uh, operating in the radical middle. In the so, radical middle. The so radical middle. Got room there for in the middle. I'll operate with There's you. A room for now, you. you and I both both accept that you know we can't track every time the Generac kicks yep. on, kicks mm-hmm. off. Is the market actually seeing that that way as yeah. well, or are we so are we it, living in la la land where yeah. people still say that? Uh, Teslas are zero, <laughs> zero emission, even though 95% yeah. of, uh, it's, yeah. It's pretty interesting. Right? I think it, it, it's actually cut up in thirds. Like if we're looking at this on a spectrum, it's, it's third. So I think at least initially, like most trends, it just goes a thousand miles an hour and then there's an overcorrection. Like for example, um, Vanguard has pulled out of the net zero investor alliance. They won't come out and say it, but if you read between the lines in terms of why they did that, their opinion is that there's just a lot of capital that to be wasted um, in the in in achieving net zero. Now the pursuit of net zero is something different, which we should talk about. But you see Vanguard pulling out of the net zero investor alliance. You see Hanover and Munich Re pulling out of the net zero insurance alliance. So there is a little bit of a correction in terms of going gung ho on net zero. Um, that's one third. So just thinking about it pragmatically and saying like, what what should we actually do? Um, the other two thirds are separated into this is gospel. We absolutely need to do it. And there's a little bit of idealism that's built into the mix. And in my opinion, whatever the energy universe does is they're just going to disagree with it. And then the other third would say something along the lines of, um, go the other way. So almost like staunch, um, detractors of doing anything related to, to ESG unless they're you know, from a regulatory perspective, forced to do. So we have a third of our clients waiting for the SEC, SEC climate disclosure mandate to come out. We have a third of our clients that are like, nope, over my dead body. And then we have a third of our clients that are like, okay, let's let's think about this in terms of, you know, five-year plan or like what do we have to have over the next five years so that we remain ahead of the curve. Got it. And frankly, all three of them have a pretty good argument as to why they're doing it. So I wouldn't necessarily say any of them are, you know, irrational. I would just say that's from our observations how that world is separated it's by thirds. So I was talking to Katie Holmes, yeah, and the she actress. came exactly the actress, the redheaded actress. You, um, you guys, when she came on our our zero um, conference, mm-hmm. we did a. It was during COVID, so it was one of the streaming events we mm-hmm. did. She actually made the point that I hadn't thought of that scope three in a weird sort of way is going to be really good for oil and gas companies because at the end of the day, it's going to be Amazon and yeah. the vans reporting it. It's going to be oh, yeah. you know retail stores and the trucking they use to get stuff and people are going to realize, hey, it's not just oil and gas guys. You, your point is, I mean, I agree with all of that. I think it also marks a huge deficiency within the market and that's the over-reliance on ESG scores, right? I'm I'm probably never going to get a Christmas card from MSCI, for example. Um, but I, in my presentations, I have this chart and, and I give this rhetorical question, like who has a larger 
emissions footprint? Is it Amazon or is it Chevron? Wow. It's Amazon. And yeah. it's frankly not even close. But if you look at their respective ratings, especially with MSCI, Amazon scores off the charts. And you're like, well, if Amazon has empirically a, a larger environmental footprint, emissions footprint than Chevron, why do they get benefit of the doubt? Well, from a sector perspective, Amazon's sector designation is technically internet retailer. Right? I, I grew up in Illinois. I grew up in northern Chicago. Um, Amazon bought an abandoned airport in Rockford, Illinois to house their 747s, right? Because it's the central right. United States. Um, and I did a Tough Mudder there uh, right next to it. And you run by this airport. It had to have been like 40, 50 jumbo jets, all Amazon. But they continue to get this credit, as do many other companies, because sector designation in most cases determines the weighting associated with the E, the S, and the G. Internet retailer, about 8% of the weighting goes to the environmental. E and P, like Chevron, about 50% goes. So there's this, this disconnect in the capital markets, primarily due to the over-reliance of ESG scores um, because everything is weighted top down. Like you're an energy company, therefore your weighting is this. You're an internet retailer, kind of, so your weighting is this. And that, that's frankly another thing that um, clients we're working with is improving the scores because unfortunately it, it dictates a lot of index and ETF inclusion. A triple B rating with MSCI represents about 20 billion of AUM indexed. And so in a world where passive thematic investing is growing in popularity, it just looks funny if you're saying you have all these things in place, yet you're not included in one of the thematic indices or ETFs that represents that concept. That's crazy. It's yeah. nuts. It's yeah. super frustrating. That's that's real crazy. So a client walks in and they're kind of starting from scratch. Uh -huh. Walk me through kind of what your advice is and make up any fact you need to to make up. And, yeah. and let's my audience is mainly mm -hmm. energy folks. So let's be an energy company right. with that. Make up some facts. Tell me what you're advising them on. What sort of things are you think are best practices? Mm -hmm. What are the sorts of things you think going to lead to to raise raise money? What I think the biggest thing is you know what are they what are they looking to achieve? Like some companies are just like, hey, we just C equals degree. We just want to do enough. Some companies are like, we 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 want to go for the gold. Um, and both both are fine, but in most cases, it's we want to pursue these pools of capital, you know, whether it's on the private or the public side, you know, what do we have to do? Um, I want I want the highest valuation metric <laughs> and the most access to capital. I want the highest I valuation. Get, get, make sure that cash flow yield is high. Make sure that balance sheet's delevered. Make hmm. sure that that growth ratio is up. The the fourth or fifth thing you should look at um, is having, you know, your your data in order. And I know that sounds so simple. Um, but companies, because of the complexity of energy and because of the various business units, it's a difficult thing to do. It's very time consuming. So it's not hard intellectually. It's it's hard from a resource allocation standpoint. So we take all that onus off their shoulders. And more importantly, it aligns with how the external world is going to evaluate them. So if an LP is you know creating a sustainability report that they're going to use um, or excuse me, if a sponsor is going to use a sustainability report to raise money, you know, ensuring that each portfolio company is measuring the right data points in the same fashion 
updating at the same time so that they can aggregate that across a portfolio and then aggregate that up to do benchmarking, however they want to do benchmark or show trend, however they want to see trend. That's a process that we specialize in. Um, so what are we measuring? What would be things we'd measure? Big thing, scope one, scope two. I mean, uh, all the questionnaires are going to ask for that. Uh, any sort of waste metric, water stewardship is a huge one. Um, you know, especially if you What's look- the, What would be a water stewardship yeah. metric? I don't even know what that would so be. So water, what's fascinating- Can I drink it or not? Binary. <laughs> can I bathe in it, right? Can, can, I, can I cut it with my vodka to make yeah. it a little bit less uh, tasty? So I, I think with water stewardship, you know, three years ago, there's like two water questions uh, on, a, on a questionnaire. It was like, do you have a water policy? You know, what's your fresh water use? Something like that. Today, you know, those questionnaires are actually pretty uh, complex. There's maybe about eight to 12 questions on water. And it's everything from flow back to recycle to potable. Um, I think, you know, what we see in the San Juan, especially like we have a couple of clients that operate in the San Juan where you know trucking water not only increases your emissions profile but it's super expensive well building technology to to be a better steward of water use uh showcases not just necessarily your technological prowess but also it reduces emissions it showcases that you're being thoughtful um i think people still don't understand outside the energy space you know the people who are evaluating this with whether it's a stewardship team um, or just someone reviewing a questionnaire, like, what is flowback? Like, right. they don't know that terminology. Um, and that goes to my point earlier of, you know, you have to take the time to really educate them because they will probably, in most cases, never admit it. But they, there's this educational lag that that takes place or that exists currently in the capital markets. When you say potable water, they don't know what that means. When you say recycled water, they understand obviously what the notion, the concept of recycled, but they don't understand how that plays in. Um, when you talk about some of the new technologies, whether it's the nitrogen gel or you know enhanced ways of fracking, you know once again they've been conditioned to think that fracking is the worst F word out there, right? It's right. A pretty bad F word. Um, you know how does water play into that? We've had clients um, come to us where investors outside of energy have asked, well, why is water so important to oil and gas? Um, so this 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 massive lag in terms of understanding not only exists, but I think the questions are becoming more complex because you want to get them to understand well how how critical is water to the energy space in its entirety, and how are we doing in terms of making that an economic consideration? Um, if you're just going through water, if you're not doing you know what your competitors are doing, you can make the argument that it's a margin. Impact or it impacts margin or cash flow, and I think those evaluations are becoming much more complex. And I always joke that emissions is clearly a one A, but water is a very close one B. Okay, because you know at the end of the day, I mean, again, in the radical middle or radical. whatever, whatever we're we're calling it, we go drill our well uh -huh. to get our fresh water. Yep, and we use the water, we frack, and then we take the flow back. And we pump it back down to the ground. Yep. So on a water scale, I don't think we really did anything. Is that uh, is, is that kind of a uh, is that me being too much of a homer? That's the, too much of a homer. That's yeah, too much of a homer. That's too much of a homer. I guess we do have emissions along the way because you're running a rig yeah. to drill for that water, and obviously if you have spills, that's mm -hmm. that's kind of bad. But 
But uh, I think it's part of a broader macro. Like, look what's going on in Arizona with the agricultural space. Like, they're having to stop harvest production, however, I don't know the agricultural term, because of lack of water. You have um, the dams in Nevada where they're at, you know, I think I forget the, the term, but it's like, dead man status right it's it's worse than drought it's called like dead man or something along that so from a macro perspective there's a greater emphasis on water um because you're either in a position to where you're in this massive drought or where it's impacting you know um, access to water in states for a variety of different reasons and so those questions sort of fester right, and then penetrate other areas and you're like oh wait energy is really reliant on water like what are you doing to ensure that you're not the proverbial that guy right no one wants to be the that guy yeah with any of this stuff with emissions or waste or water so you know number one as i said it's it's sometimes a struggle to get the data organized of course in most cases they have it but it's like are we that guy right like are, are we that company that unbeknownst I mean, I to us taking it out of a river taking it right. out of a lake you're that guy mm -hmm. i mean i uh i definitely uh, totally i definitely guy. get that mm -hmm. But I've always kind of said, well, we drilled for it. I mean, yeah. it sits under the ground if we don't take it out. But I guess at some point, it's coming out of an aquifer that maybe at somebody some, Yeah, and someone, use. you know, it's another, like, NGOs in particular are getting pretty crafty with how they're connecting the dots and then going or preemptively or proactively calling people out. Um, now, in some cases, it's totally warranted. Um, and you see this more in the methane world. You see, you know, the EPA, frankly... Um, partnering with NGOs to go search out like who are the egregious methane offenders. I don't think it's too crazy or out of the realm of possibility for those respective entities to search for like the egregious water offenders, something along yeah, those yeah. lines. Um, and they do a really good job. They're very well funded. Um, they're very well organized. Um, you know, they're they have their stuff together. And I think what's more frustrating is they they will go out of their way to almost shame somebody um now in some cases there's probably some companies that totally deserve it um but then again you don't want to be that company you want to understand well where do we stack up on the competitive bell curve like are we in the top quartile because if we are we're gonna have a problem if we're hovering right around the middle like radical middle yeah you know, that's probably the place to be yeah so what else, okay so so we're going in, we're getting our data together. We got scope one, we got scope two. We're focused on our water mm -hmm. use and we're sitting there thinking through, okay, what are we going to present? Recognizing if we present something and we take it back, yeah. people are going to ask questions right. and all that. And we're trying to figure out where we want to be. Do we want to be, you know, Captain Kirk boldly going where no man's right. gone before? Are we going to lag in the back? What else are we thinking through? And yeah. then tell me how this is going to be different if we're doing this podcast again in three to five yeah. years. Yeah. So it's sort of like the art of the disclosure, right? A little bit of, of, you know, who's the audience that we really want this to appeal to? And then how is the data trending? And then people, people tend to think, you know, if we highlight this vulnerability, like we're releasing Pandora's box. In most cases, odds are that they whoever they is, the external party, they're already aware of that, right? They're doing this work. So it's almost like this preemptive scouting report. We're, we're scouting external evaluators so that you can get ahead of anyone backing you into a corner and saying like, you know, why, why are you doing this? Um, the art of the disclosure, as we, as we like to say, is, okay, we don't want to do too little and we don't want to do too much. 
what's the competitive landscape look like? Are you fulfilling the regulatory obligations, namely SEC climate disclosure mandate, sustainable finance disclosure regulation out of Europe? Um, I'll get to CSRD because that's the next framework to kind of enter the framework wars. Um, and then saying, okay, how would this data be? You know, what, what's the context for this, how this data would be evaluated? I think you have to marry a narrative, a realistic and a, obviously a real or a, um, what I'm looking for, a, a realistic and a, a, an honest narrative associated with that, but the talking points. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a client whose flaring is really, really high. Um, their flaring is ridiculously high, um, but it's ridiculously high because they're being compared to operators in the Permian and the Eagleford. Um, this company operates in the Bakken. So if I'm looking at this, if I'm an external party, I'm like, wow, this, this company's flaring is ridiculously high. Um, why is that? The, the reasonable, the logical answer is, well, they're in the Bakken. Um, we were talking to a stewardship team with a very influential um, institutional manage manager and they're like, well, why is this so high? It's like, well, you have to understand, like you're comparing Bakken permanent. Probably shouldn't do that. It's apples and oranges. I swear to yeah. God. And just, and just to flesh it out for mom, you know, mom, mom there's, 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 there's North Dakota, a, West Texas. Yeah. <laughs> North Dakota, West Texas. And there's just not a lot of associated natural gas right. with Bakken producing. So it's really expensive to put in a pipeline, right. capture that natural right. gas in West Texas. You can put pipe out on the ground. You yeah, know? exactly. Like and and there's a lot of natural gas around. So right. there's pipes everywhere. It's, yep. it's a lot easier to gather. And in North Dakota, because so little gas, you're just, you're sitting there. It's so much easier to just flare it. Right. And yeah. so the, the, quest, the question was, well, what's the Bakken? And you're like, okay. So it, it, it's, it, it showcases the point of someone was very well-intentioned and someone had taken the time externally to do the work. But- there are talking points that they need to be educated on. So it's not necessarily let's benchmark you. It's let's evaluate you as you would be evaluated. Let's give you that preemptive scouting report, the talking points, and prepare you for that inevitable question. Um, and then it's based upon where you reside in the competitive bell curve. Who are the other investors that you're not necessarily thinking about that you should? Um, we've had several clients where they're pleasantly surprised. It's like, hey, actually, on these metrics, you're in the top quartile. You're Top twentieth percent, and you're like, really? So what is the what is the story you use in the Bakken? I mean, yeah, I mean, do you, do you go in with a chart saying we're in the top quartile of Bakken producers? Well, frame you, frame it that way. You change geography, or uh, and 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 again, if I'm asking for state secrets, don't give me that because I <laughs> no, 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 it's, I'm not it's I'm not cutting Pickering Energy partners right. or checks. So uh, it's not that fascinating. Actually, someone to me. you know, um, someone I work with. Uh, Rachel, actually, she's like, well, are you going to wear the, the PEP vest? I'm like, I don't want to, I can do overkill here. Like, I don't want to be like a walking billboard during the podcast. Um, no, I th- I mean, most of it's just logical. It's, you know, luckily for that particular client, when it was just relegated to Bakken-related benchmarking, middle of the pack. Yeah. Right? We haven't had, luckily, someone where they're like that egregious. I think there's other issues um, that come from it. The um The interesting thing, too, is the EPA now releases like these egregious offenders um, on the methane part, methane leaks, and we, hey guys, we saw this, and it's it. They're like, yeah, we kind of felt like we'd be on the list, but this is news to us, right? So, 
a lot of it is like you don't know until you know. And I think one of the value adds that we're bringing to the table is let's not necessarily just evaluate you as an energy focused person would, because let's be honest, most of them don't understand how they think. It's how would the generalist community evaluate you? Because those are the ones making the determinations on this. And let's look at it through the world, through their eyes and see you know, what they would potentially come back to you and flag. And let's prepare you for that. Right? Let, let's, so energy goes back to the broader issue of energy is traditionally, at least over the last 10 years, been backed into a corner and been forced to explain why they do or don't do something. And now we want to flip those, that table around, or as Michael Scott says, the turntables. Right. We want to turn tables. Uh, and we want to we want to put them in a position where they're proactively and frankly preemptively identifying where they're strong, but also where they're weak and what they're doing about the perceived vulnerabilities. Um, I, I think the the days of energy being in a position where they are just back into this corner, it's not going to get anything done. Yeah, no, I mean burying your head in the sand. Right. Guess what happens in a vacuum? The other side wins. Mm-hmm. They fill. They get all the airtime. So yeah, no, I agree with that. So, okay, so looking out three to five years, some trends that are going to change, some things that energy companies could do to be proactive to maybe, look, we're never going to get the narrative back where people are patting us. You you don't think so? You don't think energy will ever get the narrative back? No, because the second we come close, we're going to do something really stupid, like start printing up, you know, freeze a Yankee bumper stuff and do do that stuff that we have a tendency to do, but- I mean, I, I do think, I do, th- I, t- I told this to a very prominent private equity yeah. uh, energy guy the other day. I said, if the world knew you existed, yeah. the environmentalists would have a lot less That's true. Uh, sway over the world because this guy's a great guy. He spent all yeah. his money on all these charitable endeavors and uh-huh. all. And I'm like, come on the podcast and talk about it. Oh, I don't want to do that. And I'm really? like, I'm like, seriously, you know, you kind of only have yourself to blame. But so what can we be doing? So I think on on the trends, let's play offense now. A little bit of offense. So I I think respectfully, I think the mentality um, of waiting for the SEC climate disclosure mandate to be released officially is is the wrong strategy to take. And and the reason I feel like that is even the most stringent detractors and and people who hate that rule the most. um, If you if you read the opinion that Hester Peirce, she's the former SEC commissioner. she just lambasts it. She's like, this is the worst idea ever. She is probably like, she, this is going to pass, right? She, so yeah. I did an event with her at the Petroleum Alliance of Oklahoma, and she spent you know, 30 minutes, very well thought out, incredibly thoughtful rebuttal. And then the last five minutes, we're like, well, you better prepare for this because it's coming. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like spending 40 minutes is terrible. I hate it, blah, blah, blah. Last five minutes. Other than that, Ms. Lincoln, how was the play? Yeah, yeah other than- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so getting out ahead of the climate disclosure mandate means means a couple different things. There's a framework called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, TCFD, it's commonly, commonly referred to. And that is separated into four distinct sec- sections. Um, and the first three are predominantly qualitative. It's a little bit fluffy. Where clients struggle the most is the, that fourth aspect is metrics and targets. So not only do you have to have the, the quantitative metrics in place, and as the rule is written today, I mean, assurance, both limited and reasonable, comes online in 2026, you have to provide some sort of target. So from a regulatory perspective, you have to provide a target, which once again, I don't agree with, but we're realists. And if the SEC says, does it do this, you kind of have to do it. Um, if you don't have trending data 
that has consistent definitions. So in other words, you haven't measured it the same or tracked it the same over the last three years. It's really, really hard to get a target in place that makes sense. And with the targets, you don't want to go for the gold, but you don't want to under promise. That's a function of like, what does the competitive landscape look like and where do we fit in within that? So that's the first one, TCFD with the SEC climate disclosure mandate. The other one is a framework brewing out of Europe. So unfortunately, how this usually works is something, you know, an idea is born in the Nordics, it bleeds into continental Europe, makes its way to Canada, and then some semblance of it trickles into the United States. That is referred to as the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. Uh, most of the people just abbreviate these things. It's CSRD. CSRD is the attempt to aggregate, or I, I should say, um, yeah, aggregate all the existing frameworks in place. So I won't go through all of them, but from a regulatory perspective, that is sort of the sandbox that the EU wants wants to have. Um, it's arduous. It's really time consuming. We've done it for a couple clients. Um, a little bit more on higher on the sophistication curve because they're larger market cap and you know their European investors are asking for it. Um, preparing for that, I mean, I'm not going to lie, man, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not fun. Um, the third one is SFDR, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. And what's fascinating about that legislation is it's obviously EU, but it impacts equity debt insurance because that attempts to separate the capital markets into three categories. It's Article 6, Article 8, Article 9. I didn't forget about Article 7. I actually don't know what Article 7 is. Article 6 is the investment universe in its entirety. Article 8 is some aspect of your business has an E or an S attribute. And then Article 9 would be, they call it impact, we call it renewables funds. Now, the EU is going to mandate that if an asset manager wants to have an ESG fund, or if they're going to claim they have any focused on ESG, which in today's market, my opinion is you can't really raise capital without having that, you have to provide quantitative evidence that validates that claim. So if an asset manager is going to be on the hook to prove why they are an Article 8, for example, fund, well, obviously they're going to go to their portfolio companies and say, well, we need these data points. It's a compliance, it's a compliance issue. What's what's interesting is in the this has been around for like roughly a year or so. The initial data showcases that about two-thirds of all global equity flows is about is Article 8. So people want to play both sides of the fence, right? They want they want the conventional portfolio management but they want a sprinkle of ESG because either they can charge more fees, like that's another thing that's that's interesting. Um, but the onus is on the portfolio manager to get the data. If the onus is on the portfolio manager to get the data, then obviously portcos, private and public, are, and that impacts the insurance world as, as well. We've actually partnered with an insurance company. Um, they called us, frankly, out of the blue. They're like, yeah, Munich Re is asking us you know, for all these data points and you don't know what the hell they mean. Right. Can, can you help us? We're like, yeah, of course. Like, come on, come on down. Um, you know, I, I think too, people are like, well, Article 8, you know, if all the capital flows, well, keep in mind too, like from a, from a Morningstar actually tracks this, there's a little bit of mean reversion going on with management fees, but on average over the last three years, an ESG fund can charge about a 25 to a 30% premium on management fees. So there is, as cynical as it sounds, an economic incentive for fund managers to incorporate ESG because for the time being, at least, I think over the foreseeable future, it justifies higher fees. Um, now, 
what's frustrating is like performance wise, ESG funds and conventional funds actually pretty much perform the same. But, and there is a little bit of mean reversion, as I said, going on with, with fees, but those fees have remained consistently higher than conventional funds for like the last three or four years. Yeah. Fun, uh, fees can be, fees can be sticky. Yeah. You know, what I've always told folks is you sit there and my girlfriend's British, so I got to be really careful here. From improper? <laughs> How many so, times have you made the, the tea and strumpets joke? Uh, none. None? Oh, okay. Good for you, man. I don't know if I can hold out. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. But uh, no, but one of the things she's done is she's chastised us because on the other podcast I do, BDE, yep. uh, we talk about Europe. Yep. And she's like, come on. It's 20, 30 different countries. So yep. over the last kind of two and a half, three months, we've done a blurb on each European country mm-hmm. and their energy policy. Yeah. And they are different. I yep. mean, France and their nuclear power. Yeah. is the battery for Europe, which allows right. other countries to get away with stuff. Then you've got this whole issue of each one of these European powers and their colony and where they were colonizing, right. they get energy from. Yeah. So there's this this whole thing. But where I was going with this is one of the things that's become very apparent to me is something starts in Europe, we can turn our nose up. But guess what? They've got all the insurance companies. Yeah, They have all the ships. Yeah. The Greeks have... A third of the ships out there. Well, the other thing too, you know, people don't realize is the cross pollination between the institutional investor community, right? You have Pioneer or Mundi or Schroeder's Aberdeen, like a lot after MIFID II, which for the nerds out there, MIFID II was like the restriction on research, turned upside down. You just had a lot of um, mergers between US uh, institutions and European investors. And from a compliance standpoint, it's always been the case where. If we have a cent, wherever we have a cent in the most strict of compliance, we're going to buy by the most strict of compliance. So yes, it's it's European legislation, but it impacts America. Granted, indirectly, but it's 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 much more of an issue of like I said, I keep using the word compliance. Um, but if I have if I'm a U.S. investor and I want exposure, even a dollar's worth to Europe, I have to abide by their regulations. I don't have a choice. Well, and. Something I didn't appreciate until we started doing the deep dive is 20% of the S&P 500 earnings come out of Europe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yankee arrogance. I always thought it was 99% us, <laughs> 1% the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, you so know. when I, when I was in, when, when I was in Europe, I mean, one of the things that, that they think about is the, the, the big difference just philosophically as it relates to investing is Europeans tend to look at the world from 10 years out. Like that is their investment horizon. Institutional investors, now there's exceptions, of course, but what do we usually think? Quarter, quarter. Right. You know, when you, the, the running joke is once you finish quarterly earnings, the next day you have to prepare for quarterly earnings. That's right. Um, and so, with the vast majority of, you know, money in Europe being either endowment or pensions, um, you know, they're focused on like, what is the 10 year? What do we look like in 10 years? Now, to be fair, you know, I think. U.S. companies do that as well, but they just don't weigh it as heavy. And, and you see that in the numbers. Like, what do you think the average tenure of a publicly traded CEO is? No idea. It's four years. Is it really? Yeah, it's four years. Like, oh, wow. on, on average, they're on board for like four years. And so, just by definition, I think the mentality is like, hey, you know, I'm either going to burn out or do something else within half a decade. Europe is looking at it like, hey, what does 2040 actually look like? 
Um, and so, you know what? Something that, that overlays this too that I've come to appreciate from her is, I mean, in England, they have meters in the house so you can watch how much right. you're spending yeah. right at that moment. And they are willing to conserve. They're willing yeah. to put a sweater on. None of us are. Yeah. I mean, we are so much more about consumption and over in Europe, they will be about conservation, et cetera. And so I think that plays into uh, it Yeah, as well. definitely. I agree with that. I, w- I would also say, y- look, if I, I live in, I live in Florida, like my family lives in Florida. Obviously, I work in Houston, so I, I go between. Um, originally, I'm from Chicago. And so when we first moved here three, three years ago, if I would have told my wife, like, hey, can we go easy on the AC? It's like, divorce yeah yeah get out of the house exactly like you want to you want to go you want to turn that thermostat maybe to 74 yeah like no absolutely not um so i think yeah there's definitely something to you know let's let's not change the way that we live or change the standard of living but if 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 you look at the numbers and i have these here like if you're looking at emissions per dollar of gdp the u.s is the most efficient we we figured we've cracked that rubric. We we've cracked that code. We, we've figured out how to decouple. So in other words, GDP has gone up substantially. You know, two point seven percent per year, with the exception of COVID, of course, since two thousand. But we've done it with you know utilizing forty percent less energy. So we we figured out how to increase GDP and use less energy to do so. We're one of very few countries on the planet. That's done that, right? Our emissions profile is follows a linear model. China, for example, is exponential. Right. Um, so I, I don't think the United States, in terms of energy policy, gets credit. Like there's this, in my opinion, this blanket overarching notion um, or argument that all of energy is bad and you just need to get rid of oil and gas. And you're like, are you out of your mind? Like, you, you can't do that. What we should be, what the what the argument should be is. Okay, if if the world's energy mix is eighty five percent oil, gas, coal, how long is it going to take to go from eighty five percent to let's call it fifty percent? Can take a really, really long time. You know, we're talking about decades, not talking about years. And then more importantly, if you look at where um, oil, gas, and coal make up almost a hundred percent, or the vast majority of, of fossil fuel based energy con- consumption, you're talking about China and India. I want to meet the guy that can convince India to not utilize oil, gas, and coal to increase the standard of living. Like whoever that guy is, right. he's my guy. He should be president here. Yeah. Like that, because that's an amazing salesman. Um, the reality is they're not going to do that. So I I, I want to sound patriotic and I want to sound reasonable, but the fact of the matter is like empirically, the United States has figured this out. Like that is a a model that the rest of the world, if they're really focused on decarbonization, that they should adopt because we figured it out. Now, to your point on France, like, yeah, this this conversation's done if we just go nuclear, right? Um, but for whatever reason, like, there's there's like, it's the barbell. It's like I'm gonna play with my toys over here. Everyone else is is dumb or stupid and doesn't want to listen. And on the other side, it's I'm gonna play with my toys over here, and everyone who doesn't agree is dumb or stupid or doesn't care. So we're gonna we'll we'll follow up. At some point, because what I'd love to do is have all of Pickering Energy <laughs> Partners here, because I would like to pose this, because okay. this is this is where kind of over the last two years, podcasting, thinking about it, knowing what I know about energy, I think what you just said 
China and India are going to do what they're going to do. Do whatever they want to do. Um, given that the money we are spending today, we can spend trillions to go to electric vehicles and you can make a case they're arguably a push when it comes to emissions. Or let's yeah. say they're better, but are they better enough to overcome India and China? I don't think the technology exists today that can counter China and India. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't be better and we yeah. shouldn't do these good things. I'm thinking we ought to, we have limited dollars. Yeah. And we ought to look, what should we be doing with them? And my vote would be, I'd be funding more radical next generation type technology research yeah. versus having a recycling program that loses <laughs> the city of Richmond $100,000 right. a year. Yeah, you know, exactly. Let's go throw that $100,000 a year at some kid at MIT. But that's already being done, right? So another, uh, you know, I know when we were talking earlier, you're like, the, the best way to lose someone is just throwing out fast figures. So right. hopefully I don't lose you. Um, if you look at uh, climate tech VC funding last year, it's like about $40 billion or so, something like that in that neighborhood. A fifth of that came from big oil. And so once again, I, I don't want to sound like an apologist for big oil, but if I went to any joker on the street and said, where does a fifth of climate tech funding come from? I guarantee you big oil would be at the bottom of the list. Probably wouldn't even be mentioned. Right. If you look at energy patents or excuse me, green patents, like any sort of green patent associated technology, um, the industry is leading the way. And this was a, a study done by Harvard who divested from fossil fuels. Right. Right. Uh, you know, 25% of green patents over the, in 2020 came from energy and power companies. So that's, uh, you know, relating it back to like what we do, um, I think philosophically, there's this disconnect between what energy, what the energy sector actually does and what on how people perceive them, right? What economic reality is and what common perception is, or, you know, those are not even, those aren't two separate islands. Those are two separate planets. They're not even close to yeah. being reconciled. Um, and then when we have this debate, you'll love this story. I've given it to a lot of our clients. Um, <laughs> it's almost like overplay now, but um, I was giving a talk at one of the CFA societies. And it was a debate, very cordial, but it was with portfolio managers, mostly generalists. Um, so very smart, um, very accomplished, um, very intelligent. Like, and everyone was super cool. So it wasn't like I was going into like the lion's den, armed with pitchforks or yeah. something like that. Uh, and and um, one of the comments from one of the audience members is like, "Well, what would it take to electrify everything? Like, why can't we just electrify everything?" And I said, "Well, outside of us not having enough copper." globally like let's pretend that we did if you did electrify everything by definition the way things stand today you would increase your reliance on coal which would be you know a little bit counterproductive and you would have said you would have thought like i said something right. obnoxious or crazy she's like no that's not true I'm like well, where do you think you know electricity gets its power from and i swear to god and i had the next slide ready right, right. i knew i knew where this was going like i've done this rodeo before and i swear to god you know very established very smart very accomplished portfolio manager. She goes, I go, where does electricity get its power from? She goes, electricity. Yeah. And the next slide is like, well, actually 40%. So, so I take, I, I used to take all my portfolio company CEOs out to play golf yeah. in uh, California. And we were playing at this golf tournament and Tesla was sponsoring it. And this was 10 years ago. Right. So how should I describe this? Very <laughs> Easy on the eyes, 24-year-old, yeah. telling us all about the Tesla, uh -huh. talking about zero emissions. 
And one of my CEOs, an engineer's engineer, is like, well, where does the electricity come from? She goes, well, you just plug it into the wall. There's a fascinating, I mean, look yeah. it up on YouTube. It's um, um, in Michigan. Yeah. There's the the Chevy Vault. Uh, yeah, this is so great. What the, are we doing today? 90% like, coal. Right, like, where does the power come from? The power comes from the building. Yeah. Like, well, what powers the building? And she's like, coal? Yeah. And then like the director of the utilities, it like goes to him, he's like, our grid. Yeah, coal, like, yeah. Good Lord. But that's, that is the argument. Like one of the funniest things I've ever seen, like there's a, there's a meme and it's a Tesla and his license plates is coal lover. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, exactly right. It's great. But I mean, that goes to the point of the, the disconnect that exists. Like I, I, I would make the argument with anybody that, you know, even, and, and you, and you alluded to it is Tesla's aren't net zero. Yeah. Like what, what do you need? You need lithium, cobalt, yeah. aluminum, copper. Like, have you seen a strip mine? Yeah, like mine's, mine's run on diesel. Yeah, right. exactly. It's like that's why need... I honestly think if we went 100% electric cars in the United States, I actually think oil usage would go up because yeah. the diesel needed to right. actually mine all of those minerals. And I, I mean, we couldn't really do math on that. We could stab right. at it. But I mean, at the and end the of it. to begin with is just funky back of a napkin math anyway. Like it's just littered yeah. with assumptions and you're like, okay, well, what is what? And then when you actually go through it, it's like, Okay, and once again, I, I I didn't come up through the energy space. Like I came up through like the Nasdaq world, so you right. evaluate this all the time and say something along the lines of like, just doesn't make sense. Like, okay, you need you need a ton of copper. Do we even have that? Right. And you know, one of our PMs, you should actually have him on. He's awesome. Excuse me, Mackenzie Davis. I was a PM for Sailing Stone. Um, you know, when it comes to like metals and mining, and I have a question. I'm like, Mackenzie. So yeah. and he's a fascinating guy too. Like he's he sailed like from Maine to Portugal with his daughter, and he's like this big. Oh, wow. Anyway, he'd be an interesting guy. But he does this fascinating um, presentation, and I'm going to butcher the numbers a little bit. I'm going to be off by a couple of years. Sure. It's something along the lines of when was the last time the globe successfully brought a copper mine online? Was the last time? I have no idea. It's like '96. So oh, wow. 1996, yeah. 1997. So. Like before I was even in high school, right? I was like in seventh grade or something like that. Um, and then how long did it take to extract the first remnants of copper from that mine? I mean, I'm going to say 2010, but I have it's no like 20 years, right? Now, once again, I'm off by, yeah, I'm coming something. from memory. I'm off by two yeah. or three years. I'm not off by five. I'm off by two or three years. And then how much did it cost? Billions. $20 billion. Yeah. So you, you go through this and People are like, yeah, just get some copper. Like, like I'm going to go down to Ace Hardware. Yeah. Get my copper. I'm going to stick it in the back of my pickup truck. Right. Here you go. Here's some copper. It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. And you know, your point earlier on like capital is finite. Like the, the, the great irony that's going on in this place, and DRP says it perfectly, is you know there's some degree of self-inflicted wounds that the energy space has because of the shale days. And the result of that was all you people are going to be capital disciplined to the nth degree moving right. forward. Like about cash flow, deleveraging, buybacks, dividends, that's it. On the flip side, the investors are also saying, my God, like this renewable technology is amazing. And like, here's some money, like go do it. Well, it's like, which one do you want? Do you want yeah. the capital discipline approach or do you want sort of like the home run speculative bet? Because those two things are completely different. And for the time being, renewables in many cases are that speculative bet. Now, I always tell people this, like my personal money is, you know, I have my largest exposure, my largest investment is an electrification company, right? So 
So my kids, college, like they're either going to JUCO or they're they're going to Ivy League, depending on how this electrification or investment goes. So I I believe in it, um, but I also believe in in, in capital discipline and operating under the mindset that yes, capital is finite, capital is increasingly more expensive, and then we should pursue net zero, right? We should pursue it um, because along the way, we're probably going to come up with some really cool innovative technology or capability, whatever that is, but we shouldn't draw this line in the sand and be like, it's all or nothing, like it's net zero or bust. I think that's just going to result in a variety of bad decisions, bad capital allocation, and it's not going to result in the technologies that we want. Yeah, I had uh, my environmentalist friend Kelly Mitchell on the on the podcast. One of the things she said that I don't think I appreciated because mm-hmm. I was like, why can't we just be a little better each day? Because if we're a little better each day, and there's a famous um, Pat Riley story about yeah. when the Rockets beat the Lakers in the oh. first round of the playoffs. Everybody was saying, break up the Lakers and all that. Pat Riley wrote each player a letter that offseason that went through this was your personal best season. You had this stat. Okay. He goes, if you can do 1% better this year, and he totaled it up, he said, this is what the team would look like, wow. know, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote that individual letter. Everybody did 1% better. Yeah. And look at that. The Lakers won the championship again. And I always said that we should just be incremental. The The issue Kelly has is, but if we don't draw a line in the sand somewhere, we get hooked into something and get more dependent on it. And so- Well, I would push back. I, I mean, so the, the pushback I would have on that is the market, right? Um, University of Chicago guy, Milton Friedman, you know, right. I, I, I'll, I'll argue him all day. The market has already said decarbonize. There is a fixation that I don't think that, excuse me, there's a fixation that is permanent which says every company on the globe has to figure out how to decarbonize. Now, do you need a line in the sand? I, I think it goes back to yours, like show your trend, right? You just can't say we're going to go to net zero and then say, well, you know, forget ROI and then forget financial performance. Like those things are in right. many cases mutually exclusive. That's Those are different goals. You can allocate capital in a responsible manner that earns a return that results in better technology to get you closer to net zero. I think that's the more pragmatic route to take because if you blow all, all your money and don't any do not earn that investor return, that idealism is going to go right out the door pretty yeah. quick. It's like we're starting to see that. Right, the new exactly. CEO of Shell has, yeah. has come out and said that. Uh, do you see what? Uh, uh, oh, what's CEO of Exxon? Darren Wood Darren, said yeah. the other day, yeah, I did. "We're a we're a molecule company, not <laughs> an electronic." I mean, Darren's company. got the best quotes, right? What do you call ESG lipstick on a pig? Right? Yeah. I think he's he's got yeah, these one liners. Um, but yeah, I, I think back back to the question of you know, there's some environmental groups that we talk to, and you know, no names will. But the, the question is like, why is ROI so important? And it's like, no, these are smart people, yeah, but they've come up different ways, right? Um, different perspectives. And it's, it's. I think it goes into the mentality of, God, they just want to destroy our business and they don't care. Now, there obviously is some of that, you know, it'd be right. naive to say, but there's also um, a perspective and a lot of thinking that isn't accounted for. Like when I get the question, actually more times now that I'm thinking about it, I get it, you know, it, often enough, like why is ROI so important? It's like, well, here, give me 10 bucks. Yeah. Okay. Here's eight. Like, yeah. yeah. Now, if you gave me ten bucks and I gave you fifteen back, 
Right. You're you're more inclined to give me another ten bucks. Another yeah. Ten bucks. If you give me ten bucks and I give you eight, and you give me ten bucks and I give you eight back, like you'd be like sooner or later, like I don't know if I'm really going to give you that money. And and I think back to the short sighted issue that I bring up in the United States. Um, you know, there's going to be a point in time where investors are like, "This like, we would love to do it, we, we would love, but we just can't afford to do this anymore. Like, yeah, we need a return." Yeah. And where I get really, um, I guess, where, where I really get cautious is like pension funds and endowments, particularly pension funds that are probably not in the best fiscal state saying we're going to pull out of energy and gas. Well, in this macro, where are you going to earn return? Right? The the well-being and the standard of living, is, as idealistic as it sounds, is contingent upon your performance. And if you're pulling out of oil and gas to win, you know, social points um you know you're you're putting a lot of people at risk because of how you feel about it yeah. that that is meeting a fiduciary responsibility and fulfilling some sort of personal you know obligation or whatever you want to call it those those things should not be commingled yeah my, the way i always look at it is if the colleges want to go do that knock yourself out y'all are colleges but when the firefighters and the policemen and folks like that yeah. That are going to need that money to retire on and live in. Decide they 100%. want to do that. That that's where it that's really a problem. Gets and I would say, like you know, I I teach. I'm on staff at Marquette in, in Milwaukee, and you know, Milwaukee, or excuse me, Marquette decided to buy a, divest from fossil fuels, and they had a conference there. And respectfully, I laid into the guy of like, and he ended up saying, "Well, it wasn't my decision." It's like okay, but my response was, "Okay, Milwaukee is like Chicago. It gets sub zero, you know." Quite often in the winter, turn the heat off. Yeah, you're gonna love oil and gas. Turn off your iPhones yeah. right now. Well, That's... Turn the heat off in the winter. Like yeah, that. If you're that committed to detract or from divesting from oil and gas, like let's be honest, like yeah. turn off the heat and yeah. let's see what happens. You're gonna ask for it real quick. And um, I just, but you talk to some of the younger people, like <laughs> my wife. My, so this is a funny story. My my son is he just turned 11, so he's in fifth grade. Um, and he came home from school today. He's like, dad, you'd be so proud of me. Like, and he, you know, usually it's like, dad, you know, kind of candy, like dad, whatever. I'm like, so he like blows me off. Um, like any 11 year old would do, but he comes home and says, like, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you. He's like, we were talking about energy in school today. And my teacher said, we need to go renewable. And I raised my hand. I was like, no, we need oil and gas. And so ordinarily, like we, like my kids, like most kids, right. Turn into complete psychopaths the second they sniff sugar right like in the room yeah so like we have like this very strict like only on special occasions and like even that it's in moderation I'm like get your ass in the car go into the ice cream shop you get like eight <laughs> eight layers chocolate so all this everything man and he's like really i'm like hell yeah like you know get in that car now he's like why he's like i'm so proud of you like you know you stood up to the man and, and like you know it was funny because like, there's oftentimes i'm working at home and he'll overhear it and he's got like this curiosity that brew that he's like, well, tell me about this and tell me about that. I'm like, yeah, he's like, well, why? He's like, I have a couple friends um, and they're like, yeah, oil and gas and like kills things. I'm like, here's what you tell them. Like, here's the talk. So I'm giving like this 11 year old, like nice. real, like, you know, academic empirical data points, which my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, he has to learn this. But um, young kids, you know, and I'm sensitive to this because my kids, you know, have a five, a nine and 11 year old um there's enough talk where they're like questioning 
you know, do we need oil and gas? I'm like, guys, come on. Like, we should always embrace technology and we should always strive to create innovative technologies. And if, look, we land upon some sort of innovative functional technology that replaces oil and gas, that's awesome. And we should do that. But to just say, get rid of it, you know, without any sort of backup plan in place, don't tell kids that. Like, and so once again, I was super proud. Yates kids. Yeah. Because <laughs> my kids don't believe that. They, really? get rid of, they get rid of oil and gas and say, Yates kids, I'm going to play this for you yeah. multiple times because that fancy car you're driving right now, fancy house you live in, the great education you got yeah. is all paid for by oil and gas. But back, I mean, but that's, that's why I also equally get as frustrated on the on the corporate side because it's like you guys have a great story to tell, and I understand the hesitancy, and I understand and appreciate why in some cases you don't want to do it. Um, aside from the regulatory or the impending regulatory landscape that's about to unveil itself, and aside from the expectations of the investors, like this is a positive story. Like there's some blemishes, like with any story, like with any sector. But the trends, the capabilities, the technologies, like I, I have a hard time digesting why there's such this apprehension to let, let's say play the game, play the game. Like if you're playing the, if you're, if you're approaching it like a chess match, as opposed to checkers, like this is going to look so much better in five, six, seven years than what people think it's going to be. Well, and at the end of the day, if we don't say it, if we don't tell our right. stories, the other side gets to define us yeah. and we get what we deserve. So, yeah. all right, Dan, is there another Dan over at, uh, at, uh, Pickering Energy Partners? There's, there's Mr. Pickering, of course. Yes. But there's got to be another one. So I've had Pickering you on, I've had you on. Yeah. Is so we're another uh, Dan. We have a lot of Chris's. We have a lot. Chris. Maybe I'll start my string of Chris's on. Yeah. The, uh, I think we've exhausted the, the Dan train. Yeah. There's, you got to work on the Chris's now. There we go. Well, dude, thanks for coming yeah, on. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. This is awesome. really cool. For sure. Thank you.